have you turn to Philippians chapter 2. And uh, as we look to the day of Christ approaching, I know that we mentioned uh, already the holidays coming, but I'd really be glad to spend Thanksgiving and Christmas in heaven. Uh, I'd like, like the Lord to come and take us home. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> the day of possible. That's what every believer should be looking for, for the blessed hope of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. But until then, we have things that we need to do as believers in Jesus Christ. And I think that sometimes there are all kinds of messages that the church is getting from various positions in denominations and uh, sects of, of, of the church that uh, we miss out on probably the most important things that we need to listen to. And uh, Pastor Tom kind of alluded to it in his prayer that this isn't anything about us. It's all about him. And so I'd like to come back to a, pa a passage that I, I've, I've dealt with many times before. And uh, yet I hope and pray that... Um, you'll consider it as something that's new and fresh because that's the way the Word of God is. It's always new, it's always fresh. It's always something that we need to hear. Paul says in Philippians 2, verses 12 to 16, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Again, I, I probably told this story a number of times, so if you've heard it, uh, act as if you've only heard it for, you've never heard it until now. And if you haven't heard it, act the same way. But it's a story about a man that dreamed of joining a monastery. His goal in life was to become a monk. So one day he went to a monastery and he talked to the head monk. And he asked him, what do I need to do to join? He was told that it was more difficult than what he thought. In our monastery, monks are only allowed to say two words every ten years. The man said, boy, that sounds extreme, but this is what I want to do. 
And so after the first 10 years, his superior called him in and asked him, do you have anything to say? And the monk replied, food, bad. Two words. After another 10 years, the monk again had opportunity to voice his thoughts. So he was asked, do you have anything to say? And he said, bed, hard. Another 10 years went by, 30 years now. Another 10 years go by, and again he was called in before his superior. When asked if he had anything to say, he responded, I quit. The superior then told the monk, it doesn't surprise me a bit. You've been doing nothing but complaining ever since you got here. For whatever it's worth. That doesn't just... That doesn't just focus upon that one person. <laughs> because the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, also served up a very tall order. Because he said, do all things. Capital A-L-L. -L, do all things. Without murmuring, complaining, and without disputings, grumbling, arguing, and the like. That's a pretty tall order. Be thankful you don't have 10 years to hold it in before you have to say anything, right? But the question to Paul is, don't you realize who we are? Don't you understand that, that, that we were born to complain? You know, somebody once said, it's not the things I don't understand about the Bible that trouble me, but the things I do understand. I, I understand this scripture. Work without complaining. Serve without complaining. Give without complaining. Go without complaining. I understand this and it troubles me. Why? Because I occasionally complain. Well, okay, regularly complain. Is that you? Is that me? Yet the truth of the matter is that we really have very little to complain about. Most of the time, it doesn't help to complain, does it? Does it ever help to complain? Sometimes we say, okay, I got it off my chest. I've ranted and raved. Okay, I feel better. But do you? Because then there's something else will come up and then we rant and rave again. And then think about this. Most of the stuff we complain about, it's, it's just not worth it. So why is this such a problem, especially in the church of Jesus Christ today? Well, that, that question alone begs other serious questions to be asked. And here's the question that we really need to ask. Why were we created in the image of God? Why were we created in the image of God? Is it not so that we might enjoy an intimate and loving relationship with God, with Him? Another question we need to ask is who, who is to have the preeminence in our life? Who really is to have the preeminence in our life? What I mean by that is who is to have the supremacy in our life? Who is to have the incomparability in our life? 
Who is, in other words, incomparable in our life? And no one else. Who are we to be captivated and enthralled by? Who needs, to be the, who needs to be the very center of everything we say and do? And are. I think of one verse in the Song of Solomon. In this, in this book that uh, some theologians say is one of the hardest books to understand if, if you don't have a grasp of, of, the, of the reason why it was written. But when you think of the, 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 the words and the language that is given between two people who love one another, the picture of God who loves Israel, the picture of Christ who loves his church, and how the church is to love her, her bridegroom, how Israel is to love their God. The words and song of Solomon 5.16 says, His mouth is most sweet, yea, he is altogether lovely. The words of the beloved to her beloved. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. That phrase, altogether lovely, literally means absolutely desirable. Absolutely pleasant. Absolutely wonderful. And the emphasis really is to be upon the word absolutely. And it brings us to understand the kind of love that we are to have to a God that we can't even see. As Peter himself writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-8, through 8, when he says, Wherein you greatly rejoice, so now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold, <coughs> excuse me, manifold temptations, that the trial or the testing of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Who are we waiting for? Who are we waiting to see? We haven't seen him yet. Oh, I'm sure we've seen a number of pictures, artists' conceptions. But we've never seen Jesus with these eyes. Yet we wait for him, yet we look for him, yet we love him, and we haven't seen him. In whom, though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Is it any wonder why the church is called to praise God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength? A God we can't see, but believing, we rejoice with a joy that is unspeakable. You know, that's an oxymoron. A joy that, that sometimes we're trying to express and we can't. <laughs> Yet every joy we have, we express in some way. And full of glory. 
You see, what we, know, what we know from the scriptures, what we know from the word of God, we should realize the fact that our lives as believers are to reflect and reveal the love, the joy, the peace, and the long-suffering of Jesus Christ. Because of the word of God, we are to realize that is what we are to do. That is who we are to be. Reflections of Jesus. Revealing what he is. Paul in Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2 says, Be therefore followers of God. And that word followers there literally means imitators of. Be imitators of God. As dear children. Now most of us know this. We, you know, you've had children grow up in your household and, and, and what do they do? They look at you and what do they try to do? They try to imitate you. That's why you have to be very careful what you show them in your household. Because then that's what they want to do. They look up to you. Of course they look up to you. You're the tallest people in the house. But more than that, they look up to you because they're, you're their examples. But then notice what he says in verse 2, and walk in love. As Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us an offering, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. And you know, when you think about this one little phrase of Paul's, when he says, walk in love as Christ also have loved, has, has loved us. And I think, wow, if he's loved us this way, what are we supposed to do? Sit back and say, wow, just so wonderful, God loves me. And unfortunately, too many times in churches today, we say, oh, God loves me, 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 me. We talk about the love of God, 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 me, 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 me. And then we again put the, point, put, you know, put the pointer on us and not on him. The way we put it back onto him, in other words, the focus and the attention is when we live for God and we live for Christ. And we show that to the world. That it's him and not us. He gave himself as an offering. What does that say about his love? It's a sacrificial love. What kind of love then are we supposed to have if we are to be imitators of Christ? A sacrificial love. And what murmuring and complaining do not only displeases God, not only are they detrimental to the reputation and name of God, not only do they damage our fellowship with the Lord and with others, not only do they defame the good character of our God, they also distort our witness and our testimony as lights that are supposed to reveal Christ to the world. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, I heard a good friend say, 
It's really not a sermon, it's, it's a teaching. Read the beginning of Matthew 5, it says that Jesus taught them. So we're not sermonizing here. Jesus was teaching, and this is what he taught. In Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, he said, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. With that example, he goes on to say, let your light so shine before men. May I ask you a question? What light do we have if it isn't the light that he has given us in Jesus Christ? What light do we have? The scripture makes it very clear that without Christ, our light is darkness. That's the bottom line. So he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Two things here. That they may see your works and that they may see you glorify your Father, which is in heaven. And that they may see your good works and by seeing your good works, they may glorify your Father, which is in heaven. You see, that, that's pretty much the fullness of that whole understanding there. We affect not only the lives of those who see us, but we affect our lives as well. Man grumbles and complains about a lot of things. Politics. Ooh. <laughs> Politicians. Ooh. Man, this week has been quite a week, hasn't it? Quite a week. Crazy. The weather. There's still people doing this climate change stuff. Climate change. <laughs> it's crazy. If you want to read about climate change, read the book of Revelation, chapter 13. Let you know who's in control of the weather. Taxes, paychecks, people we don't like, people we do like, <laughs> traffic, bad workmanship, length of sermons. Well, it's not a sermon, it's a teaching. <laughs> Services, length of, length of services, music, decisions of those in authority, and the like, and as Yul Brenner said in The King and I, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This list is not even scratching the surface of man's complaints. The sad thing is that murmuring and complaining, grumbling reveal the early stages of turning away from the Lord. Grumbling and complaining reveal the early stages of turning away from the Lord. And that in itself 
is due to an ungrateful and unthankful heart. It makes us realize, what are we thanking God for on Thursday? By the way, as believers, we should be thanking God every day. But what are we thanking God for on Thursday? What is, what is this nation thanking God for? Is this a national holiday? What is this nation thanking God for on Thursday? If you listen to everything on TV, nobody's got anything to be thankful for. Think about that. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have everything to be thankful to God for. And that's why we don't take one day to thank God for it. We thank God every day. In spite of what we see, in spite of what we're going through. But Paul nailed it on the head. I mean, he nails it when he talks about the times in which we're living in today. When he says in Romans 1 verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. I've, I have to stop here and say, I've heard a lot of politicians who say, you know, I believe in God and I, and I, I believe in you know, loving my neighbor as myself. And then they go on and, on a diatribe and attack people uh, directly and, 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 and viciously on TV. So which one is it? You believe in God, you love God, but you're, you, know, you hate your neighbor. That's a direct offense against God's word, isn't it? So that's why I say Paul is really nailing this. He says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. But what does God's word say? about us as believers. Colossians 3.15, very clearly very, and, and simply, and I, I quoted this last week in the Gospel of John as we're studying through chapter 14, as we're coming to a close of chapter 14, that, that and it says, and let the peace of God, the peace of God rule in your hearts. Believers, you who believe in Jesus Christ, you who believe that Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins, died and was buried and rose again on the third day. You who believe these things, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and what? Be ye thankful. Be thankful. <clears throat> I, I get a little carried away, I, and I, I might start sounding like Mr. Haney from uh, Green Acres. You know, don't laugh. How many of you know, remember uh, that? Okay bunch of old people in here. Think about what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. Mr. Douglas. <laughs> it's coming out. <laughs> 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. In everything, give thanks. Everything. King James breaks it down to two words. Everything, give thanks. I like that. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In our text, in Philippians chapter 2, God's word to us is very clear here. 
do all things without murmurings and disputings. I'm going to say this is a very hard thing to do, obviously in the flesh. But nothing is impossible with God. So we have to come to grips with how we can possibly do this. Because the first thing the flesh wants to do is complain. First thing the flesh wants to do is murmur. First thing the flesh wants to do is grumble. But it's clear, do all things without murmurings and disputings. This is not written, by the way. This is not written to us as an option. It's not a suggestion. It's not a nice thing to do. It's not a suggestion to consider somewhere down the road of life. You know, well, maybe later when I get into, you know, retirement age, I'll not grumble and complain anymore. Folks, it is a God-breathed, inspired command. God-breathed. Inspiration. That's what the word inspiration means. It is a God-breathed, inspired command. And the imperative the imperative is not about doing some things, a few things, most things, or a majority of things. Instead, the Lord made it clear, do all things. Do all things. Man, I'll tell you what, there's not a person in this whole room that doesn't need to examine their hearts about this issue. And as Paul once said, I'll copy him, I'm the chief of sinners. But now understand that before Paul states this, before he says this, he writes in verse 13 of Philippians 2, for it is God which worketh in you. Now that's a mouthful right there. It is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That says a lot about, first of all, who's working in us if we're surrendered to the leading and inspiration of the Holy Spirit or the working of the Holy Spirit in our life. He works in us both to will so that we are doing his will and to do what we do for his good pleasure. Which means we're not going out to look for something to do that will displease him. Yet sometimes we do. But think about this. In, in chapter 1 of, of uh, Philippians, previous to this, Paul reminded the saints in verse 6, Philippians 1, 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you. You see, God has begun the good work in you now that you've come to him as Lord and Savior. You've come to Him as your salvation. You've come to Him with a changed heart because He's changed it for you. He has begun a good work in you. He will perform it until the day of Christ, of Jesus Christ. Now, that word perform there, very interesting word because it means to be fulfilled completely, accomplished accomplished to the fullest. God is working in you a good work until he finishes it until the day of Christ. It's still going on in each and every one of you. Paul at one time said, I am not yet completed. 
And if Paul could say that, I mean, we could say that about ourselves as well. He's, we're still works in progress. And if we, use the, if we use the charts, you know, like they do in business, you know, well, we're having progress going here, we're going up, look, look, oh, I had a really problem, a big problem here. What happens when we come down here? Does the Lord just throw us out? Does the Lord get mad at us in the sense that he wasn't aware that we were going to fall that far from grace? What does he do? He knew. He knew exactly when that little point was going to go like this. He knew it. And then he begins, as we are convicted by the Holy Spirit, and we begin to do this again. Why? Because he loves us, doesn't he? And he said, I have loved you to the uttermost. I have loved you with a steadfast love. The love of God for each and every one of us here reaches into the heavens, Scripture tells us. That's how much he loves you. And he'll perform it until, and then, you know, by the way, where we drop from, that point here, is not the highest point we'll have again. He'll get us working until we get over here. Hopefully we don't fall as far. We might slip a little, but this is his work in us. Consider that, if you will. So God's work in us is made equally clear to us in these passages. When believers murmur and complain, to a great extent, we are communicating displeasure and resentment and even rejection of his work in us. It's as if a person says, Lord, I don't like what you're doing. I don't like what you're doing to me. If I, if, if I had it my way, I would certainly do things differently. Folks, I'm not going to ask you if you've ever said that, but I bet you anything you've said that. In some way, you've said that. I don't like the way you're, you're dealing with me, Lord. If, if it was up to me, I'd do it different. Now, don't say you're not doing it, because you know I don't want you to be lying here today. I want those little clouds forming right above you and then a little lightning bolt or something come, come down on you. But that's the reality of our flesh. That's the reality of our flesh, as even as believers. I want you to take a moment and look at what at the words of Paul in, 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 a, in Ephesians 2, verse 10. Ephesians 2, verse 10 you know, after he's talked about the fact that, you know, we were saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He goes on and he says, for we are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. Literally, the word workmanship here in the Greek is the word Poema. Now, a poem, if you study language or in English or, you know, whatever, literature. So a poem is a well-constructed piece of art. I'm not talking about Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. You know, that, you know I'm not talking about nursery rhyme. I'm talking about the rhyme of the ancient mariner by Coleridge. 
the intimations on immortality by Wordsworth. Things like that. Read them. Think about what goes into writing something of great uh, literary height. It takes a lot of work. The point is, it takes a lot of work. Well, who is a greater poet than God? Who is a greater poet than God who has designed us in his image and has, has molded us and shaped us, worked us, not only like a poet, but like a, a potter? When we surrender ourselves as clay in the hands of a master potter, he molds us and he shapes us. And sometimes, you know, we, we get broken and then he takes us and crushes us. And he makes us again. Softens us with water. He reshapes us. Always making something beautiful. Scripture says in his time, he makes all things beautiful in his time. Let me say he's not done with any of us. Our times are in his hand. Let him keep working on you. Let him keep working in you. Let him keep working with you. Let him keep working for you. And let him keep working through you. What a wonder our God is. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. God has seen the beginning from the end for each and every one of us. And our beginning and end is all different, aren't they? There's not one of us that is the same beginning and end. Each one of us has a different end and different beginning. And yet God has seen it all. God has fashioned them all. God has ordained them all. And what can we do but surrender to that? And surrender to his love. Surrender to his grace. Surrender to his mercy. Surrender to his power. Surrender to his sovereignty. Surrender to his providence. Surrender to his grace. With these things that we've read already in the scriptures, let's ask the question, to what end is God working in our lives then? To what end? What is the end? What is the goal that God has for you and me? I would have you turn to Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. Another passage that we kind of touched upon last week. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Uh, this is certainly an inkling of, of what we've talked about so far. All things work together for good. No matter what we see happening, all things will work together for good to those who love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. Remember, he is working his will in and through us. 
For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be, and here it is, here's the, the thing you underline, here's the thing that you uh, highlight, this is the thing that you circle in your Bibles, to be conformed to the image of his Son. That is the end or the goal toward which God is working in our lives. To be conformed to the image of his Son. Who is his Son? Jesus. That he might be the firstborn. <coughs> the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. And that just gives us a picture of the direction that every believer is going through. Before we knew it, and until we see it. Before we knew it, God was already working a work. Until we see it, we're, tr we're just trusting. We're believing. And we're waiting. And we're looking up because our redemption draws near. But when it comes, you will know. If we are to be conformed to the image of God's Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then what is it that characterizes that image? What is it that characterizes the image of Jesus Christ in us? Once again, we have to turn to Paul's letters in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 26. Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. You know, we could stop there. I mean, we shouldn't. <laughs> but we could stop there. Because if you consider fruit, one piece of fruit is made up of a lot of different parts, isn't it? When you break it down. You, once you pull it off of a tree, you know, it has its stem that was connected to the tree. But then you look at the fruit a little bit more and it has this outside covering. And usually you have to kind of bite through that or cut through that so you can get to the most important part, which is the fruit inside. And then you have the fruit inside and then you, and then you just kind of smile it and just, you know, your mouth is watering and dripping all over your face. And, and you know, you're just getting, and the sweetness of it is getting down deep into your, mm, yeah. And your olfactory glands in your nose are just, you know, you can smell that fruit and so on and so forth until you take the last bite, which is right in the core. And then you hear this, you, you, you crack on the seeds, you know. There's all kinds of parts to that fruit, isn't there? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love. fruit of the Spirit is that whole fruit itself. And then come all the parts to it. Joy. Because once you bite into it, you start having joy. And peace. You're thinking nothing more about anything than just how wonderful that fruit is. 
joy and peace and long-suffering. Oh, you could just sit there and eat that thing all day long if you could. Gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. There, in that little phrase there, verse 24, they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts. It is in that flesh and in those affections and lusts that we find murmurings and complainings trying to lift up their heads. But notice he goes on to say, if we live in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory. Don't be desirous of, of, of the attention and the glory that only belongs, by the way, to God, right? It only belongs to the Lord. So don't be desirous of that. Bible very clear. God's not going to share his glory with any man. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory. Because when we do, what do we do? We provoke one another. We provoke. Envy one another. And he says, this is what happens. When you desire the glory, then you provoke one another. You envy one another. And therefore, we lay the, the groundwork for murmuring and complaining. And what we read of the nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit can be summed up in one name, the name of Yeshua, the name of Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit, the, 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 all the characteristics can be summed up in that name, Jesus Christ our Lord. Everything that He is, His nature, His character, serves as the direct contrast and opposition to murmuring and complaining. Everything that he is. His joy stands in direct contrast to grumbling. His peace stands in complete opposition to murmuring. Our lives are to be a solid and steadfast reflection of who Jesus Christ is, not who we are. That's the difference. In Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, it says, If you then be raised, I'm sorry, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for you are dead. You are dead. Remember what Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. He said, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. It is not about you. It is not about me. It's all about Jesus. I urge you to beware of those who parade themselves on stages going from one side to the other, wearing $1,000 suits, trying to get the attention of people and then say, yeah, it's all God, but send your money so I can have more of these things. 
you are dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Praise God. Murmuring and complaining not only damages God's word to us and God's work in us, it also damages God's work through us. Let's look at our text, Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. I think this week, if it hasn't already done so, it's been very clear that our nation is a corrupt, crooked, and perverse nation at that, isn't it? So it's not talking directly about the United States here, but any nation. We shine, and we're supposed to shine as lights in the world. Our constant murmuring and grumbling and complaining diminishes the saints' testimony and witness of Christ in effect by dimming that light that Paul speaks of. The idea of shining as lights in the world coincides with the statement that Paul makes in verse 12 of our text when he says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that doesn't mean that you save yourself by the things that you do. No, salvation is of Christ and of Christ alone. But one thing that we know is that when we receive the salvation that we get from Jesus Christ because we acknowledge the fact that he died on the cross, that he shed his blood, that he, was, uh, that he died and was buried and he rose again from the dead, when we acknowledge these things, confess them with our mouth, believe them in our hearts, and we are saved, what we are to then, to then do is to work out, exercise our salvation. Exercise it. Work it out. Work it through. Let God do it, because that's really the whole issue here. The idea of working out your own salvation has nothing to do with fin finishing whatever the Lord began in you. It has everything to do with making visible God's work in us and through us with the understanding that complaining and grumbling tarnishes that work. And therefore, we are to exercise visibly God's work with fear and trembling. Remember... It's not about us. It's about Him. God is to be worshipped. Our worship is to be one of fearing the Lord in the proper and reverential sense, in the sense of giving all respect, giving all honor, giving all glory to Him, not, be, you know, not calling Him you know, chummy and, and you know, my buddy up in the, you know, upstairs and all of that kind of stuff. It's, 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 it's having a high view of God. Fear and trembling. But trembling is realizing that we serve a God who spoke all things into existence. Light be and light was. The God who holds every molecule in place. 
Thank God he's holding the molecules in place in those chairs you're sitting in. Might not be sitting comfortably today if he didn't. Three things that we want to close with this morning. Paul says that we are to be. He says, be blameless. Be blameless. The Greek word for blameless is the word amemtos. A-M-E-M-P-T-O-S. Amemtos. Which literally means faultless, irreproachable, unadulterated, unmixed, never watered down, never weakened, of top quality, nothing added to lessen its value. That's what blameless means. We are to be blameless. We are to be faultless, irreproachable. We are to be unmixed. We are to never be watered down. Complaining and murmuring contaminate the character, the person, and the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. Complaining and murmuring and grumbling only water us down, weakens us. Our quality goes down. The quality of our witness, the quality of our work, the quality of our worship. You know, some people will come into church, they, well, they won't worship because they're grumbling about something inside of them. Does that not grieve God that you came, but you're not willing to surrender all things to Him? And you don't worship, and you don't praise? Then all of a sudden... You go home the same way you came in. God wants to change that. I sometimes think there needs to be more tears at the beginning of a service than at the end. Because we realize when we begin to worship who we're worshiping and why. Secondly, he says that we are to be harmless. The Greek word is akeraios, which means innocent, does not cause hurt, does not offend. And whatever causes an angry reaction has been rooted out and removed. That's a good thing to think about when we start to have these desires to grumble and complain. Because nine times out of ten, our grumbling and complaining is going to lead to offense. To offending someone. And we're not to offend. Be harmless. What brings all of these thoughts together is the third thing that we are to be. Be children of God. And this is a term of identification. In this case, identifying with the Son of God, the Savior and Redeemer, who does not murmur or complain. Jesus did not murmur or complain. You go through the, go through the gospel. Now what he did was he, he gave truth. 
Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Not complaining to them, he's telling them what they are. He's telling it like it is. Because he's God in the flesh. The fact is that murmuring and complaining goes way back with God's people. <laughs> way back. I mean, way back. Way, way back. Way back. Got it? It goes way back. <laughs> Am I, have I made the point yet? Yeah, okay. It goes way back. Certainly before this example. I'm going to give you, but, but Moses reminded the children of Israel about something. You know, they, here they're going to go into the promised land, and he says, okay, you know, we, we're going to leave now, we're going to leave Sinai, and we're going to head toward the, you know, the, the um, Mount of the Amorites and all of this and, and, and whatnot, and, 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 and so they say, okay, whatever you say, we're going to do, you know, and then they start heading that way, and, and uh, so they decided, uh, you know, that they're going to misrepresent God's character here. And I'm just uh, kind of shorting the, the, the story here, but in Deuteronomy 1, verses 26 and 27, it says, Notwithstanding, and this is Moses, you know, God through Moses saying, Notwithstanding, you would not go up, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to uh, deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. All along, God said, I'm going to send you to the Amorites so you can go and take these lands, take the mountain, take these things. I'm giving them to you. But what they did was they complained and therefore misrepresented God's heart, God's character, God's love, God's grace, everything that God was. They misrepresented by saying, he brought us out here because he hates us. And it really is wrong when somebody will use the word of God to beat their people over the head with legalism. So you keep living this way, God's going to, you know, no matter how many times you receive Christ, every time you ask God, you know, for salvation, you know, he's going to, you take one step out of the way, and boom, he's going to kill you. Hates you. Doesn't hate you. God is not a God of hate, he's a God of love, isn't he? But because he's holy, the one thing he hates, of course, is everything that is of darkness, everything. There are three things, and we're going to close with this, three things that we find out in, 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 in the children of Israel, but it just kind of come down through all of history to everyone who should believe and trust. This is what happens. The first thing is rebellion and disobedience. Rebellion and disobedience, the bottom line cause of their complaining. They rebelled against God, they disobeyed God. You could even add there that they misrepresented God, because they said, he hates us, therefore he's going to destroy us. Now they're the ones setting the agenda, right? Secondly, the reaction, the reaction was they focused on the tough circumstances and took their eyes off of God and forgot who was in control. Why are we in the wilderness? They were in the wilderness because they rebelled and disobeyed. What should have taken about a week or a little bit over a week's time to get them from Egypt to the promised land took them 40 years. 
Because all they did was murmur and complain. You brought us out here to die. You brought us out here to, you know, you're going to kill us. And then, oh, the the Egyptians are coming after us. You brought us out here. You know, he opens the the Red Sea. And then uh, they go through, you know, and then uh, the army of Pharaoh is defeated. Then they go on. Oh, you brought us out here to die. (laughs) When are you going to learn God's character and nature and love towards you? I'm saying to the Israelites, not towards you, unless you really need to know God's nature and love and character for you. I hope you know it. But that's the reaction of most people who have, have taken their lives off of the Lord. They, they, they focus on the circumstances. They take their eyes off of God who's in control. And the result then is the rejection. The last thing, rejection. Complaining has its root. Complaining has its root. The root of complaint is unbelief. Unbelief. What are we doing not believing? If we say we believe. If we say we trust. What are we doing not believing? So what are we then to do until Christ returns? What are we then to do? Well, let's take hold of verse 16 of Philippians 2 and close with this. Holding forth the words, I'm sorry, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. That I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Hold forth the word of life. Stand up and upon the truth of the word of God. Let God work in you. Let God work through you. I say this is a good time for us to do that. A good time for us to really come before God and say, Lord, work in me today. And when you begin that process in me, Lord, then work through me. Work through me. Because I realize that your purpose is that I would be conformed to the image of Christ. And if I understand that now, then I need to surrender to your love, to your mercy, to your grace, and to your truth. Let's do that today. Let's not wait till Thursday, Thanksgiving. Let's give thanks now. Let's not wait till Thursday to rejoice in the things that God has done for us. Let's rejoice now. Let's live now for Christ. Amen?